Thank you so much for inviting me and hosting me so graciously. <clears throat> Thank you all for coming. And there's some people on there. Is it possible to see the see the Zoom people? Well, three of them there's... have their. Oh. But we're recording you. So okay. Very pixelated. And. Are most of you coming to the weekend retreat? How, how many people are coming this weekend? So most, but not everyone. So um, wonderful. We have a chance to, to uh, study together this Zen teaching by Menzan Zendi. And uh, so I can try to summarize all of it today for those who, who will be there <laughs> this weekend. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, we're calling this the heart of Zen because there's this text by a Zen teacher from the 18th century, Menzan Zenji, uh, and it's translated into English in a book called The Heart of Zen, which uh, I I really recommend. It's it you can you can find it a free download on the Soto Zen website. Um, we can post it later if you want, but, uh, and it's kind of hard to find the actual paper book because it's published in Japan, but um, it's around too. And it has a, this book, Heart of Zen, has a, an essay by uh, Dogen Zenji, the really kind of founder of our Japanese Zen tradition. And this, this essay we're going to talk about by Menzan in the 1700s and then a more contemporary 1900s Zen teaching that all, all Soto Zen, this lineage of Zen. And it's called Heart of Zen because I think the, the translator tried to kind of capture the spirit of our particular lineage style of Zen through these three kind of Zazen teachings from different um, time periods. <clears throat> and the one uh, that we can look at this weekend is by Menzan Zenji, who um, <clears throat> many people haven't heard of, probably. Uh, we often hear of the Japanese founding teachers of Soto Zen as Dogen, Zenji and Keizan Zenji, kind of co-founders in the 1200s and 1300s. <clears throat> and they wrote a lot and, and uh, really created the understanding of this style of practice, emphasizing zazen, sitting meditation. And then uh, some centuries later, in the, in the 1700s, <clears throat> there was a teacher, Menzan, who... I don't know, people might, might come up with uh, different people as the next most important Soto Zen teacher, but I think he's, he's up there on the list. He might be like the third most important um, after Dogen and Kazan. Uh, he wrote a lot, apparently like over a hundred books, but uh, almost none of it's translated into English. Maybe this one that we'll talk about this weekend is one of the only ones in English. 
And he was kind of a, um, just to tell you a little bit about Menzan before we get into the teaching, to celebrate this somewhat unknown Zen teacher. Uh, he was really into Dogen and uh, kind of popularized Dogen teaching. He was kind of a Dogen scholar, but also a real Zazen practitioner and an abbot of various Zen temples. And uh, some unique things about him is that um, he, he uh, left home to become a priest in his teens, which was not that unusual in those days. His mother died when he was 15, so uh, that kind of sparked his, his um, aspiration for awakening, seeing the impermanence of the world. Dogen's mom also died really uh, young, so often this, especially a young person watching the parents die or loved ones die, is kind of this intense reminder of how life is impermanent what's it all about anyway and uh like what is this what is this life so in that way it's a, often a positive the death of a loved one is often like a positive catalyst for a lot of these zen ancestors to really kind of uh, motivate their practice and menzan was one of them and he then he practiced with um which was he practiced with a bunch of different teachers um, in different lineages. And I think this was kind of common in those days, maybe less common these days. So he practiced with um, Rinzai Zen teachers as well as Soto Zen teachers. And there's this Obaku lineage that's sort of not quite Rinzai or Soto uh, Zen school that he practiced with those teachers too. And also the Vajrayana of Japan, Shingon. He practiced with some of the Shingon teachers and received their like Samaya tantric precepts and, uh, from those teachers. So he was really eclectic and just liked to study all of Buddha Dharma and practice it. <clears throat> but Soto Zen was his main thing. And uh, I think it was after his, his main teacher died and he had uh, received that Soto lineage, he um, had this long-standing aspiration to do a really long solitary retreat. And I think that this is kind of unusual in the Soto Zen realm in the in the 1700s or ever really in Japan. Um, he wanted to do a thousand-day retreat, which is basically a three-year three-year retreat, which is a kind of custom in Tibetan Buddhism uh, <clears throat> up to the present. But I haven't heard of anybody else doing this in Zen, but he was one of them who somehow wanting to do this for a long time, he eventually found a place to do it. I think a kind of abandoned temple or small hermitage and, um, and the people of that town said, well, we'll bring you food for these thousand days. And he, was, he was teaching in that area. And apparently during his retreat, he was doing it alone, but it wasn't in total isolation. And he would sometimes come out and give talks or maybe lead retreats, mini retreats or something like that. But he did do a thousand day retreat and, and it was apparently just Zazen and um, studying Dogen's Shogogenzo, which I think 
that would be awesome <laughs> to spend a thousand days studying Dogen's Shobogenzo. Apparently he just went through it like several times. That was like his one book, big book. And then interspersed with lots of Zazen. We don't know his daily schedule, but <laughs> yeah, we can just imagine. So, so that story stands out. I think it's kind of unusual about this character. And, uh, so he was kind of a scholar, especially really wanted to understand Dogen's understanding of Zazen. And he wanted to practice Dogen's understanding of Zazen and uh, did them both. And then later after that retreat, then he was abbot at several different temples and monasteries around Japan. And um, at the end of his life, the last place that he, that he taught for quite some time, maybe a a couple of decades, even uh, uh, Kuinji, uh, the, the seal of emptiness temple in uh, <clears throat> what was then called Wakasa uh, and is now called Obama. <laughs> and, and this is the town where Konjin Roshi and I both um, happened to um, practice for a while in Japan. She was at Hoshinji and I was at Bukokuji. And both these temples are um, in this town of Obama that was called Wakasa in Nenzan's time. <coughs> so, he had, so he has this temple that I went to visit once in, in uh, Obama, I could just walk over there, but it wasn't like an active monastery, um, kind of big for like a village temple, but um, no one was around when, when I went by, but it's still there. It's a functioning temple. It wasn't that long ago. It's 1700s. <laughs> so long ago. Nenzan was living there and thriving and writing all these Shogogenzo commentaries and kind of raised the level of Dogen scholarship at that time period in Japan. And uh, it has continued up to today, partly with his influence. So that's a little of the life of Menzan. And uh, this one text that we have translated into English is something that he wrote uh, for um, the lay people, the householder practitioners around his, around his town of Obama that were practicing with him. Um, so he practiced with, with um, I don't know how many, it was some monastics and priests in the, in the monastery there, but also with the lay people of the town. And he particularly wrote this in requests from the lay people. They're like, they had Zazen groups with, with men's on, and they said, what's a good thing we should read? We could read that really like kind of um, captures the spirit of um, Dogen's Zazen and um, the way that you teach it, men's on. Give us a reading list. <laughs> and and Hanzan kind of looked through his, you know, he was into all these teachings and he looked through and some were written in Chinese. And, um, and he felt like, actually, I wouldn't recommend any of these, <laughs> any contemporary books, um, strangely. Or maybe he felt like none of them quite hit it perfectly. But so I'm going to write one for. Uh, at the request of these people who practice with me for these, not for priests, but for people practicing in their daily life, but who were into Zazen and maybe would come and do um, Zazen Kai one day sittings and things like that. So he did, he wrote this, this text 
uh, it's it's maybe twenty pages or so, <coughs> and uh, quotes a lot of pieces from Dogen and other Zen ancestors, but kind of presents Zazen in a somewhat unique way. I think based on his understanding of this lineage, and I think he does a great job of it. I I recommend it myself if, <laughs> if somebody wanted one kind of kind of classic. Soto Zen text. We have a lot of modern American versions, but this is like a little more closer to the to the ancient tradition, putting it in kind of in kind of classical terms, but also a little bit more clear than say Dogen and Kazan. They're so poetic and so far out in their writing, long thousands of pages of writing. But if you really want the clear Zazen instruction and all of that. It's kind of straightforward. It's a little bit hard to find. We do have like Dogen's Fukanza Zengi, his universal instructions for Zazen. It's pretty good. But I kind of feel like Menzan makes it maybe even more clear. You might feel at the end of the weekend that it's maybe still not that clear, but <laughs> it's hard to talk about that Zazen and the really, um, to really cover the the heart of his understanding in, in a clear but accessible way because it's subtle and profound and also straightforward and simple. So this text by Menzan is called uh, in Japanese, Jijuyu Zamai. <clears throat> and that's named after a, uh, a phrase that, that Dogen used uh, <laughs> that Dogen brings up in one of his early essays. So, and Dogen got it, maybe it's, it's, it's used occasionally in like Chinese Zen teachings, but not very much, it's not a popular term. So Dogen kind of popularized it and Menzan used it. So, Jijiyu Zamai, so Ji, in Japanese means self. Ju means uh, receiving, like we have this term jukai means to receive the precepts, it's that do. And you means um, to use or to employ or to function. So sometimes we, you can translate this phrase, GGU, uh, in in various ways. So sometimes we say like self self receiving and employing, self receiving and self employing, or the self receiving its function, or receptive functioning self, something like this. But also when you in Japanese when you put together some words. They form compounds. So this ju-yu, receiving and employing, when you put them together as a compound, they have a different meaning. That is enjoyment or fulfillment. Fulfilling, fulfillment, enjoying, enjoyment, um, which is a little different than receiving and employing. So how that came to be is it's not just a Zen thing. This is just in Chinese language when you combine uh, receive and use together. That means 
enjoy enjoyment just we can imagine how um when we're um you know putting aside the self part just the ju you right means enjoyment when there's when there's like a, a receiving and a using or when our life is like receptively receiving and and actively functioning at the same time that's enjoyable and maybe that's why that receiving and employing as a compound means enjoyment or for fulfillment <clears throat> so i think that usually when you'd see these these two characters together it would be read as a compound so probably the most accurate way to translate this gju is like self enjoyment or self fulfillment or yeah <clears throat> but etymologically we can kind of open it up and say self receiving and employing and then zamai gju zamai zamai is the japanese transliteration of the sanskrit term samadhi and samadhi means um like one pointedness we often translate it as concentration but it doesn't have to be like we say if we say one pointed concentration that sounds like focusing your attention like a laser beam on one point and so samadhi can be practiced like that but often in zen there's these different types of samadhi or poetically named samadhis and they're not so much emphasizing like a laser beam of concentration on some point they're talking more about like a very vast expansive kind of presence which is also samadhi <clears throat> maybe maybe concentration doesn't fit so well for talking about a vast expansive spacious presence um but in both cases if we if we're narrowly focused or spaciously um open in both cases they're both about presence being really present <clears throat> here and now so um i like to very loosely think of samadhi as uh, not exactly translated but think of it as presence i think it works so um the self fulfilling presence jiju samadhi the self enjoyment presence the presence of self enjoyment this this week i I'll translate the title like that. Jiju Zamai, self enjoyment presence, is the name of this essay, and coming from Dogen's teaching. So Dogen says in the uh, in his uh, uh, practice of the wholehearted way essay, <coughs> part of which we will we'll chant it this weekend, called the. Jiju Zamai, the section called Jiju Zamai, self and self and receiving and employing samadhi, <clears throat> self enjoyment, presence. That section of this longer text um, begins with Dogen saying, um, "Now, now, so what's about now?" presence now all ancestors all zen ancestors and all buddhas who uphold buddha dharma have made it the true practice 
to sit upright in the midst of Jiju Zamai. All ancestors and all Buddhas who uphold Buddha Dharma have made it the true practice to uh, sit upright in the midst of the self-enjoyment presence. So that's what Dogen says. But he doesn't say that much more exactly about what it is, <laughs> even though he says all, all the, the Buddhas and ancestors through, through India and China, they all practice this way. What exactly is it? <laughs> you know, he kind of he kind of poetically expresses some feeling about it. But uh, how do we do it? So this is this. Um, <clears throat> Menzon brings it out a little a little bit more, I think. <clears throat> but um, to go back to this title again, self enjoyment samadhi. What is this self-enjoyment? <clears throat> is Zazen just about like enjoying ourselves? <clears throat> In a way, but I think this um, this word self, this word self is a key, a key word in this title and a key concept in Zen. When we hear this word self in in Buddha's teaching. In, in Buddhism, and um, especially within, within Zen, it's not always clear what it's referring to. So I'd like to propose that there's three different kinds of self. <clears throat> and uh, usually they don't tell you which of these three it is when they're in these Zen texts. So, but if we know these three, then maybe we can, we can discern it and then we can talk about it. Um, what it means in this case. And this is just my own idea, this three types of self. There's maybe 84,000 types of self, really. But this is just uh, three ways that I, I see mentioned in the teachings, but maybe aren't always so clear. So one type of self, we're, we're talking about us, by the way, our, ourselves. One type of self is we could call the... Um, interdependent self, the dependently arising self, the self that arises and ceases moment to moment, um, dependent on conditions. <clears throat> so, like, there's this, this body has something to do with ourself, and uh, these feelings, pleasant and unpleasant, have something to do with ourself, these perceptions of the, of the world, and and conceiving of <clears throat> things, something to do with ourselves, our kind of um, habitual tendencies, our um, kind of conditioned patterns of our personality that makes us all like a little bit different and unique. That has something to do with ourselves, and uh, our our consciousness that knows things that knows colors and sounds, that um, seems like a kind of a, like a subjective sense of like a knower that knows objects outside of itself, the consciousness that's kind of connecting a subject and an object, we call dualistic consciousness, 
that has something to do with upself too. <clears throat> so these, these are, we call five aggregates that I just listed, five skandhas, um, elements of body and mind. So for sure, without going into lots of details about these five aggregates, this is a body and mind, anything in our body and mind experience is, and is constantly changing. It's impermanent. Our body is changing every moment, right? Um, and our, um, our feelings and perceptions and, and um, conditioned patterning and consciousness, the consciousness that arises and ceases with each object of experience, all of these are impermanent, changing moment to moment. <clears throat> and, um, and they're arising and ceasing dependent on all kinds of conditions, like the previous body and mind experience and other people's body and mind experience and the, um, the fan that's spinning around and the cars driving by and the, uh, the time of day and the, the crickets, <coughs> the cricket, cicadas, cicadas, like our body and mind experience depends on them, right? If we hear them. And it depends on learning that the cicadas from night day and August. <laughs> so, so there's, this is why we call it an interdependent or dependently arising collection of body and mind experiences. And uh, so this one type of self, we could call it a conventional, a conventional interdependent kind of self. And um, so sometimes we hear this teaching about no self or not self, but this is not the one that the Buddha is referring to when he says not self. <clears throat> it's like, it's not such a problem to, um, be living in this impermanent, constantly changing body and mind. Um, but uh, but what, the, what the Buddha is more concerned with is, is the second type of self would be when we imagine that this changing body and mind experience is actually one singular, permanent, independent, personal, kind of separate, entity called me. Do you see the difference? One's like interdependent, constantly changing, totally impermanent, and um, <clears throat> conditioned and dependent, and kind of, we can't quite get a hold of it because it's changing moment to moment. That one's <clears throat> like not so problematic, but when we feel as if we imagine, unconsciously imagine and feel as if this flux of changing body and mind stuff is not um, a multiplicity of experiences, but it's one singular entity. It's not impermanent flux, but it's permanent kind of unchanging in some way. And um, it's not dependent, but it's independent existing on its own. And, um, and, it's, and it's therefore kind of separate um, entity, just the fact that it's an entity rather than a, a kind of flow of different types of experience, that kind of projection or an imagination of this entity called me 
that's the one that Buddha says, this one is kind of problematic. This one is even the root of all our problems. <clears throat> Imagining that there's somebody like that. Either, either that the collection of body and mind stuff is not a collection, but it's a singular entity. And it's this unchanging separate thing called me. Or that this singular permanent independent entity is a kind of like owner of this body and mind stuff. Sometimes we imagine it like that too. Like what kind of owner would that be? Well, something that kind of like manages this collection of stuff that, that has a body and mind. <clears throat> and our language shows that up when we um, <clears throat> say things like, just simple things like, my body, my body hurts today. My head hurts today. And then if someone were to ask, whose head hurts? <laughs> Mine does. Well, who's, you mean somebody, you mean you own the head? Yes, it's my head. Well, who is that owner of the head? And then we start to look, hmm, I'm not quite sure. I do say it's my head that hurts, but um, not quite sure what I mean by it when I start looking. <laughs> but I imagine there must be somebody here that has the head. <laughs> and then we start looking, maybe we just see that well, it's, it's actually not somebody that has a head. It's more just like a collection of stuff. And the head and the, the painful head is just part of the collection of stuff. <laughs> or we might think that, well, the consciousness, that, that fifth aggregate, that's the owner of the head because that one is actually experiencing the painful head. But then when we look at that consciousness, is again just, it's a rising and ceasing um, moment to moment dependent on its on a particular experience when the experience is changing moment to moment <clears throat> so it's not some singular entity either so um, Buddha says we don't we don't consciously form a, a kind of philosophy or something that there's that there's this self that owns our body and mind or that is some singular entity of body and mind <clears throat> but we kind of unconsciously and naturally imagine that it's like that and the buddha says we should look at that we should examine this carefully and when the buddha says not self he's talking about that one that imagined entity so mostly the buddha didn't say um in all these teachings that he's very kind of known for one of these prominent teachings of anatman, not self. But he never said there is no self, interestingly. What he said over and over again is, this body is not actually my true self in the, in the sense of a singular, permanent, and um, independent entity. These feelings are, are not really who I am, are not, this, are not truly myself. These perceptions are not myself. These... these um, personality patterns are not myself and this this arising and ceasing dualistic consciousness that depends on different experiences that's even not myself so those are the things that are not myself so you could say remember the first type of self is this this conventional one that is those those things in a way the collection the changing 
multiplicity of experiences, body and mind experiences, is a kind of conventional self. <laughs> and then the Buddha is saying, but that's not, when he says that stuff is not myself, he said that that's not a, um, not some kind of entity or owner of experience, not some singular, permanent, independent entity. But we can have this flux of stuff, just don't identify with, with it as who we are in some limited, fixed kind of way. Can you follow this? So there's two types of self, right? One's this kind of flux. It's not so such a problem, but then we imagine it to be this more fixed, limited, kind of claustrophobic self. Um, that one, you can see how it's problematic too. It's like, we've, that's the one that's like, you know, you hurt me or you said it to me, you insulted me. You know, the body and mind is just this stuff. It's like, it's just stuff happening. It's not like an entity that can be insulted. But if you say, Coco, you really messed up there. Then I put all that stuff together into this entity and like, I did it wrong. It's not just like the body and mind, you know, made some mistakes. It's more like, it's me that did it. And they, and this name, Kokyo, that I kind of conveniently um, stick on this collection of stuff makes the collection of stuff seem like a singular entity because it just says this one name, Kokyo. <laughs> kind of names trick us into limiting things, into their entityness. So those are, those are two different kinds of self. And sometimes we use self in this sort of casual way, like the Buddha sometimes said, like, you know, I'm going to have lunch now. And, you know, the students didn't say, what do you mean I'm going to have lunch? I thought there's no self. <laughs> and you might say, well, there's just this appearing body and mind um, experiences, and there's some hunger there, so let's feed it. And, and I can use the name I for that collection, but it's not some entity. So um, sometimes you see self using this relative conventional kind of way and sometimes you see it as this like problematic thing that that is the maybe when we use the word ego which is in that really a freudian term that got into buddhism somehow <laughs> yeah we generally maybe mean that, that this fixed limited separate one um like ego clinging this kind of thing uh so it's good to discern the difference. And some schools of Buddhism might just leave it at that. There are these two kinds, this conventional, relative, ungraspable one, and then this kind of imagination of this fixed entity that doesn't really exist, that's, um, that's a source of all our problems. But then we could add in a third, <coughs> that some, um, some, teachers of Buddha Dharma from ancient times in India, China, and Japan sometimes talk about this third one. And um, it's a little bit controversial, maybe, to even talk about it because, because of the second one, because this word self starts getting this reputation for being this problematic thing. So now um, this third one is called like a true self, especially if you call it like a true self wait a second, I thought that's the one that we're refuting. That's the one that's the illusory entity, this projection that's the cause of our problems. 
now the Buddhists are saying that there's a true self. So, so up to this day, um, some are like, I don't want to hear about that one. <laughs> that one's like, that's not Buddha Dharma anymore. So I think many people could feel this, but, um, and, and think this way. But in fact, there is this teaching from, from way back in India, like the third century, they started so some, some centuries after the Buddha lived, but a long time ago, in the Mahayana sutras, the great vehicle sutras, that were, that were kind of like challenging. These sutras, these scriptures started arising that were, that were challenging the status quo, maybe, and, and bringing up teachings that seemed like they were different than the early teachings. So one of these Mahayana sutras, um, particularly the what's called the Parinirvana Sutra, the Mahayana Maha Parinirvana Sutra, the um, Great Freedom Sutra, the Great um, Cessation Sutra, <laughs> which is long. It's like a thousand pages, epic, great vehicle sutra with lots of teachings, but. And one of the prominent teachings in the sutra is this true self. And, uh, and then, you know, it spread around India, but wasn't, you know, it wasn't one of the main Indian sutras. But then it, when it came to China, it became like really prominent sutra in, in uh, early Chinese Buddhism. And Zen in China was really influenced by this Parinirvana sutra that teaches a true self. And so it kind of stuck in the Zen lineage in China and also in Japan. But, but you don't hear this true self in other Buddhist traditions so much. Even like Tibetan Buddhism, I think partly because this sutra wasn't so influential. It was acknowledged as an authentic Indian sutra. And it was influential to some people in Tibet. But they don't use the term true self. And, and Theravada, early Buddhism, like Vipassana, they wouldn't use this either, but they kind of got into Zen, I think, especially through this sutra. And um, <clears throat> in that sutra, it talks about it a lot, not just like one time or something. It's like a theme of this sutra, this thousand page sutra. And uh, I think one of the early times it's, and the Buddha teaches in the sutra the same thing as, as this early teaching that that I've just mentioned is that this body is not the self. This, um, these feelings are not the self, are not the true self, actually. The, these perceptions are not the true self. These conditioned tendencies are not the true self. The dualistic consciousness is not the true self. The Buddha te teaches that again in his sutra. And then one of, one of his students asks him, um, blessed one, Buddha, well, you say all these things are not self. Is, is there any self, actually? So somebody finally asked it. <laughs> and the Buddha says in this sutra, kind of radically, yes, there is, actually. Uh, what I call self is um, tathagata garba. It's this Sanskrit word. That means, tathagata is like another name for the Buddha. And garba is like, can mean like, a womb or a, a storehouse, but it can also mean like the heart of something, the pith or the heart, 
almost like essence of something. So like you could say the Buddha, Buddha heart or Buddha essence um, is the self. And then, and then the Buddha says, um, all sentient beings have Buddha nature. This is classic term, the sentence that Dogen quotes and others quote. All sentient beings have Buddha nature. And this is this other term, Buddha Datu, which is almost the same as Tathagatagarbha. There's just these different Sanskrit words. Let's just say Buddha nature. All sentient beings actually have this awakened nature, Buddha nature. And this is precisely what I mean by the self. And in Sanskrit, it's this term Atman. This is what I mean by the true Atman. It's Buddha nature. And then the sutra gets into how it's, it's, um, it's unchanging. It's a big theme of this sutra. This Buddha nature self is always um, unchanging and beginningless and endless. It's unchanging because it's timeless. It's not like a permanent entity. It just doesn't change because it's not a conditioned, dependent thing that changes. It's not an impermanent phenomena. <clears throat> and, um, and it's always okay, <laughs> the Buddha says, even blissful, or it's, it's, just, it's free from suffering in its very nature. And, uh, and it's pure in its very nature. It's not tainted by um, delusion and ignorance. So um, this is a third type of self. So it's, you can see how it's, it's not the same as the chain, constantly changing body and mind. Um, it's not the same as um, this fixed entity that's like a separate individual me, because this Buddha nature self, this third type, is also not an individual um, personal self. It's more like uh, all-inclusive, boundless self. And so it's similar to teachings like emptiness and, um, and the realm of reality and things like this. So why did, which those teachings were already around, why, why would they have to call it a self, Buddha? <laughs> why, why, do you, why, why not just call it emptiness or something? Why are you doing this controversial thing of calling it an Atman or self? And... Um, and you can read this thousand page sutra to get some some comments on that. But um, <laughs> but one one uh, one thought that I have is um, it makes it kind of like intimate to call it that. If we just say um, everything is marked by emptiness, it kind of sounds like this abstract idea about everything else. But if we if we say this is us, this is who we really are, it makes it kind of like almost personal, not personal in an individual way, but like it brings it home, right? It, it makes it like, it's like our true nature. It's, it's so, it's so, it's not an abstract philosophical idea out there. It's more like I am actually timeless in my, in my true nature, not this body and mind stuff, but my truest, deepest nature is timeless and boundless and um, free from suffering and pure and, uh, and always okay. And, 
and always like this and beginninglessly, endlessly like this. And, and even my birth um, doesn't improve it and my death doesn't uh, diminish it because it's not coming and going. So something like this, I think maybe part of the reason for calling itself just to bring it home, make it so intimate. <laughs> so with these three types, you can, from now on, when you read especially Zen writings, you can say, which one are they talking about there? <laughs> and it's not, they don't, they don't say self, number one, number two, number three, right? <laughs> and so it's a little confusing, I, I feel like, when you read Zen things. Like Dogen says famously, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. So if you just hear that one sentence, it could be any of the three, actually. Right? And it's true. You could study all three of them. And that is to study the way. I think it is to study all three, like we're doing right now. <laughs> but then the next sentence, um, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. So then we are kind of got this clue of like, well, which one should we forget? <laughs> Maybe we don't need to forget the true self, but the, but the second one, this problematic one, if we start, we can start to study that. And when we study it, we can start to let go of that projection, that, that imagination. And I think that's what he means by for, forget the self. So that's like the second imagined self. We can forget that one. So... But elsewhere, Gogan uses the word, the same word self for, um, for like this third kind of, we might say big self. Um, like I, I'll, I'll find it later um, in the weekend or something, the exact quote. But I think he says in um, one of his essays, something like, it's the wish of all beings, that the deepest wish of all beings to know the self and very few people come to know the self and it's the greatest thing to know the self something like this where i think he's talking about this third kind buddha nature so um all this is this is the commentary on the first character of the title of Nguyen's essay. <laughs> we got into G. G, G, U, G. And so with these three types of self, I would propose that we're talking about the third kind here. And we can see as he starts to use the term in this essay, self-enjoyment samadhi. Um, this kind of true self um, according to the Parinirvana Sutra, um, it is it is joyful. Its very nature is naturally joyful. So it is actually, you could say, enjoying itself. The true self is always enjoying itself. Not like sometimes. Not like when Koko is enjoying himself, <laughs> then the true his true self is enjoying itself. Now even when. Kokyo is actually really not enjoying himself. His, his small self, he's not enjoying. His relative self is kind of like, has a headache or something, right? He's not enjoying that. But his true self, which is also your true self, is, is enjoying itself at the same time. Why is it enjoying itself? 
because um, it's just simply um, open and aware and uh, in this in this equal way with everything all the time. So um, it's it doesn't it doesn't make a problem of things. It's naturally okay. I make a problem of things. I'm not always okay, meaning the relative <laughs> self, right? Um, because I can like, I have this, like, especially my third aggregate is like conceiving of all these things. And my fourth aggregate is kind of judging, like I like these ones and I don't like these ones. And then my second aggregate, the feelings are like, this one's pleasant and this one's not pleasant. So those aggregates are, are like ranking and judging everything. Um, and so sometimes that kind of relative self is happy, sometimes unhappy. But the other, but this, if we say it's just being aware, this Buddha nature kind of self, uh, it, and it's being aware equally with everything, it's not getting into these judgment things. That's not its job. The other aggregates have those jobs. Its job is to just be aware. And you could say, well, doesn't that, that sounds like the fifth aggregate, this consciousness that knows the world. So it's, in a way, it's very similar. But the difference is that the, the fifth aggregate is, seems to be divided into like a subject over here that's knowing the world out there, the world of colors and sounds, of cicadas and things like that. So when it seems to be divided like that, the Buddha teaches that um, it's, it's, uh, it arises dependent on the particular cicada sound. And then when that sound dies, then there's another consciousness that like sees the candle and engages with that. And there's another one that thinks a thought. And so it's, it's impermanent and it's conditioned and dependent. And uh, whereas this big, big mind, big self awareness is not divided into a subject and object like that. <clears throat> and what's the relationship between them, between the divided dualistic consciousness and the undivided non-dual awareness that we call true self? The relationship is just that the, you could say the true nature of the dualistic consciousness is the non-dual awareness. It's not like they're two different entities or that there really is nothing but the non-dual awareness, but it seems to for us sentient beings, it seems to divide itself into an apparent subject and object. It seems to be divided like that, but it's but that's an illusion according to these teachings. So, um, so the third type of self, the Buddha nature self, is enjoying itself. Enjoying mean it's just it's not making a problem. It's just okay, that kind of enjoyment. It's not like having a grand old time kind of enjoyment. It's, it's just okay. It's just um it's um it's peace, it's peaceful, so peaceful, so free of um resistance and um discontent that we can call it blissful or joyful or um it is enjoyment it's like a beginningless endless enjoyment that's an enjoyment that's not dependent on conditions that's the main thing most we're used to enjoyment that depends on things going 
our way <laughs> that this is this kind of self is enjoying itself everything is always going its way it's like it's um because everything is just in a way happening within it as it in fact every these are more teachings that we get into but from its perspective there is nothing other than it actually all appearances are are its own manifestations and it, it can even create um, manifest uh, unpleasant experiences just because it's free to do so so from its perspective it's even enjoying it's even enjoying that because um, it's all just what is it's all just what is so um, so so I think that the, I think that these Zen ancestors are talking about um, my understanding is that they're saying there is our true self is always enjoying itself and there's a kind of samadhi which is usually thought of as a kind of practice um, a kind of presence being present and opening into um, this reality as the Buddha teaches it's a reality that's already here that, that the true self is enjoying itself and then we can the practice opening into that and appreciating that, like aligning our aligning our relative self, we might even say, with the true self. Or even if we don't align our relative self with the true self, just to appreciate that there is this, that our true self is enjoying itself um, always. And that's a kind of a meditation practice. That's a kind of samadhi called the self-enjoyment Samadhi. And um, I'll just read a little bit more and then we can have some discussion about this. So, um, in Menzan's essay called Self Enjoyment Presence, the presence of the self enjoying itself, in the, in the preface, to this like maybe 20 page essay he has this little maybe one page preface where he's talking about the term ggu's am i and he says an ancient teacher said and i would be interested to know who it was but uh, <laughs> no um, no annotator has put that one in yet uh, some somebody said some dharma teacher said um Virochana, this is the name of, of Dharmakaya Buddha. Sometimes we chant the name Virochana Buddha, so it's part of this great vehicle sutra tradition of the, all these different Buddhas with different names. <coughs> and Virochana is Dharmakaya is in a, in a way another name for the true self. Sometimes I actually say it that way, especially when the when Buddha nature or the true self is completely unobscured or complete, not, not um, hidden in our own delusions, when it's revealed in its fullness, that's sometimes going to be the definition of the so-called Dharmakaya, the reality body of the Buddha. And this reality body of the Buddha has, a, has his own name, interestingly, it's called Vairochana. And Vairochana in Sanskrit means shining or um, illuminator 
So Menzon says, this is the very beginning of his essay, an ancient teacher said, quote, Vairochana means universally illuminating light, which it does mean <laughs> in Sanskrit. And in Japanese, they translate, um, Chinese and Japanese, they translate the Sanskrit Vairochana as um, the Japanese Dainichi, which means um, great sun, like the shining sun. So it's not exactly literal, but it's close. The great sun Buddha, Dainichi. Nyorai. Uh, so, so this ancient teacher said, Vairochana means universally illuminating light. This word has two connotations or two aspects. It's universally illuminating light. One is that the Buddha inwardly illuminates the true realm of reality, the Dharmadhatu, with the light of knowing. So one meaning of this word, Vairochana, universally illuminating light, is that the Buddha inwardly illuminates the realm of reality with the light of knowing, let's say. This is awareness in like facing inward and illuminating itself. This light imagery is, is another name for knowing or cognition or, or um, awareness. So one, so one meaning of universally illuminating is that the Buddha inwardly illuminates the, the realm of reality with the light of knowing. This is GGU or um, self-enjoyment, according to this ancient teacher. The second connotation of this word um, universally illuminating light is that the Buddha outwardly illuminates people and all beings and teaches them with the light of his own body. So the, the light of awareness also illuminates the world and other people and, um, and even interacts with others, teaches them and so on. Bhairochana Buddha does this. And this is called Tajuyu. So Ta means other. G means self, ta means other. GGU is self-enjoyment, Tajuyu is other enjoyment. So um, again, Vairochana Buddha, this, this Dharmakaya Buddha, this reality body Buddha, this completeness of Buddha nature Buddha, universally illuminating light, has these two aspects. One is that this Buddha awareness inwardly illuminates, we might say, itself inwardly with the light of just knowing or awareness. This is self-enjoyment. And it also outwardly illuminates <coughs> the myriad things, and particularly sentient beings, and um, therefore benefits them, teaches them through this light. And um, this is other enjoyment. So it's, it's these two opposite sounding terms, self-enjoyment and other enjoyment. And Buddhas have both. They're, they're at the same time. They're enjoying, they have this, in this samadhi that's in, where their true self is enjoying itself. And then it's also um, letting others enjoy that hour. That's, you could say, the compassionate aspect of Buddhas. And then, um, and then 
the teaching here is that this tajayu, this other, other enjoyment, fulfilling, if you translate it as self-fulfillment, other fulfillment, it's fulfilling others, benefiting them, that that's included within self-enjoyment or self-fulfillment. The other fulfillment is part of this boundless, all-inclusive self-enjoyment that's manifesting simultaneously as other enjoyment. That one maybe gets a little hard to talk about. <laughs> but, the, it, but I think the point being that it's not really a distinction. There's this part called self-fulfilling samadhi. We're going to ignore the other fulfilling. It's like, no, we're not going to ignore that. that, that it's this self-fulfilling, self-enjoyment samadhi is so vast and all-inclusive that this benefiting others is happening within that. And the more, the more we clarify it, the more, um, the more we, uh, the compassion grows because it's seen as like the natural working of the self-enjoyment samadhi is the other enjoyment samadhi. So something like this, uh, yeah. And Menzan doesn't get more into that point after this. He's just introducing, maybe what he feels it's like the origin of this term self-enjoyment from some ancient teacher. And, uh, so this is all um, introducing the title and everything's in the title. So if you're not coming after today, <laughs> you, you, you got it all. <laughs> so that was a lot of unpacking types of self and so on. Do you have questions? Did, did any of it not make sense? The things to clarify here for build on this further? Or anything that has to, anything about menzan or zen or what's this have to do with meditation practice? <laughs> it sounds so abstract. Anything you want to pick up? Yes. You'll have to repeat it for the. Okay. Which self does the does zazen? Ah, so the question <laughs> is, which self does zazen? Yeah, so we could answer it in various ways, but we could say that all three selves do zazen, depending exactly what we mean by zazen. But um, <laughs> we could say, <laughs> like when there's when there's walking into the room and kind of like arranging our body in a certain posture, we're using this kind of the relative body, right? The first first aggregate form or body, and we're um. Um, and we're using intention as part of the fourth aggregate to kind of like uh, come in and we intend to sit upright and uh, stay present. So we're using, we're using these aggregates of the relative body and mind experience to kind of set, set up the body and mind of Zazen. And some might even see that that's, in fact, that's all we're doing that, that, um, we're just using these aspects of body and mind to um, to be become really present through our own intention and our, our body and mind training. <clears throat> so we have to say that one should be included. And then we said, the second one, do we need that one for Zazen? Doesn't that one kind of hinder Zazen, actually? This reified, um, imagined, um, projected kind of entity. Um, I might say that one well, I, we don't need for Sasan, but in fact, 
It might be doing zazen too. <laughs> Sometimes, again, depending what we mean by zazen, um, it might be in, in my zazen anyway. Sometimes that second one is hanging around, and it's it's like Tokyo. Why do you keep getting distracted? It's that kind of like talking. It's like a kind of judgmental voice. Um, it's kind of like, why don't you, you know, why don't you? Get your body and mind together to like be really present and not miss any breaths. Why don't you do that? I'm like, who? <laughs> who's, who's talking? <laughs> Is it that one that that owner, the owner of the zazen, the owner of the body and mind that's doing zazen? Okay, the owner of the body and mind is like. It's time for you, body and mind, to do zazen. Ready? Go. <laughs> Wait a second. You're not doing it. Why aren't you doing it? I told you to. <laughs> so, so that's the second one in zazen, but it's kind of hindering the zazen, right? It's like that's the one we could maybe in zazen when we notice that voice, we can um, see if we can kind of catch it. Like, oh, that's you're the one that's called the second type of self and you're just um you're not really needed here at least right now you i don't know maybe you maybe you seem helpful at some time but this is a time when you don't seem so helpful you can um you can just rest this body and mind will take care of zazen you can um you the the, the separate self the imagined separate self um you're like off duty for 40 minutes. Just, just take a rest. You've earned it. <laughs> so, uh, so that one could be happening. But um, but it's kind of like tends to kind of derail the zazen. And I think we all doing some meditation, we kind of have a sense of that that one is the, the sort of commentator and sort of judge. Um, and we could say the commentators in the conditioned body and mind. But when we, if it's based on feeling like there's somebody here um, who's supposed to be different than he is, that's kind of that one, right? And, um, and then the third type is definitely there in Zazen. It might be like, well, I'm not in touch with this self-enjoyment samadhi. I'm having like a hard period of Zazen. But the teaching is, but that self-enjoying one is, is also there at the same It's it's beginningless and endless. It's never not present, but it's it's subtle. It's subtle um, to um, discern it or appreciate it because it's not an experience. It's not another experience. Everything in the body and mind, um, five aggregates package, we could call experience. Experience is something that's arising moment to moment it's happening at a certain time and place that's what i would mean by experience and this big self is not happening at a certain time and place it's um it's it's timeless and it's locationless and it's boundless but it's also um what is most true interestingly we can't find it as an experience but it's you could say it's pervading all our experience. It's a it's allowing all our experience, or it is aware of all our experience. It actually is manifesting as all our experience. It is the very experiencing of all experience, but the experiencing is not another experience. 
It's just, it's like the space in which all experience is happening. So that one's, we, if we want to get rid of that one in Zazen, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. It's always, it's always present. It's inescapable. And in fact, it's, you could, you could say it's the one that's really like nourishing the Zazen. And pertinent to this question, it looks to me like Menzan is saying here that actually this is the main thing in Zazen, this third type. So he doesn't even talk that much about like the particular body and mind. He does kind of, a de- actually, I think he's, uh, he doesn't really talk about like the posture and the breath and stuff in like 30 pages of Zazen instruction. Oh. And then at the end, I think one, one theory, I think one of the commentators or something said, um, he realized he gave it to these people that asked for it. And they said, but, you know, what are we supposed to give us some more specifics? And he said, oh, yeah, I forgot to mention. Yeah, there's some things like about like sitting up straight. And, like, <laughs> so he kind of adds that on at the end. It's like a little like appendix in the, the translation that we have. He's like, now I'll, I'll just mention some sayings from Dogen, basically. And he puts Dogen's instructions about the posture in there. But mainly he's emphasizing... Um, how to practice with this third type of true self. And all of you have probably had Zazen instruction and got the, like, with the posture. Anybody not have some? Oh, are you coming this weekend? Okay. I'm not proud of Okay. You can come sometime to the Zen Center here. Yeah. And for that, it's nice to do because it's a little more detail than we do tonight about like, some details of the posture, but basically sitting up really straight, relaxing the shoulders, relaxed hand, mudra, and um, comfortable, upright and relaxed, and keep our eyes open a little, and breathe down in the belly. That, that's the second, you could say the second type of self, aspects of zazen. That those are the ones we usually give instructions for the second type of self. And maybe we give some instructions about if you have some judgments about the, about what's happening, just relax and be present and let that stuff go. It's kind of instructions to the second type of self. But maybe we don't give so much instructions about the third third type of self because it's hard to talk about. <laughs> That's why we can do it this weekend. Yes. Uh, of the three selves, <laughs> why is it that the second one is it? Why does it are you know? nature or that makes the second self the easiest ones to get identified with the easiest one that is always knocking around the door the second one is yeah in general the body and mind why is it so difficult to get and identify the other self what is it about mind or human evolution makes us to more drawn as we start unconsciously to to be um not in control Hmm. I mean, it is interesting that, that the, the second type, uh, the first type of self, just the changing body and mind experience, is in a way you could say that's what we're mostly paying attention to through the day. It is the most obvious. I think that's true. That the, the first type of the interdependent kind of self is basically every experience, the content of all our experience is this first type of self. So that is what we're kind of paying attention to is our experience all day long. And um, that's just the way it is. And then, and then the second type, you could say it is hard to notice that, this sense of kind of like 
but that we're unconsciously um, um, reifying this word reifying, we don't use very much, but it's a nice one. So just to mention this word reify, it, it means to, um, to give more reality to something than it actually has. So it's a great Buddhist term. We, we reify this body and mind. We give it more kind of fixed, limited reality than it actually has. It's, it's just this kind of ungraspable flux of stuff, but we, we reify it means we like simplify it in a way into this one entity called me. Partly by giving it a name, it seems to, it seems to solidify it into a singular, independent, separate, permanent entity. And, and you're saying, why is it harder to see that, that one? It is harder to see that one. I think because it's, it's this unconscious process that we're doing. We don't. We just think that we're attending to the flux of experience, but there's in the background there's this subtle sense of we're actually feel as if we are this entity that's having the experience. It's a strange thing. So the Buddhist Buddha knows that like it is harder to notice it. So he's giving all these teachings about it from different angles and saying we we'll have to really pay attention, and it's hard to pay attention. So we should we should we should be kind of quiet and and um, concentrated to, to, in order to notice it. Because when we're so involved in it, we're so busy being immersed in experience that we don't, that there's so much going on, we don't notice so much when we're doing this background kind of like um, projection. But if we're really quiet and still and the experience gets simpler, then we maybe have a chance to notice. So it's harder. And the third one you could say is, yeah, it's even harder to notice uh, mainly because it's not an experience. Like I said, it's a, the, the second type, in a way, is a kind of experience. It's a subtle, we can catch the experience of this reification, this creating this illusion. The third type, we can never really gra grasp it as an experience because it is, it is defined as the, as the, you know, the experiencing or the space in which all experience is happening. And, and it's not, it's not an event at a certain time and place. So it's really in a way it's harder to understand and to um, verify it. But, um, but we can, open, the more we hear about it, the more we can open to, it is like that. We are aware right now, actually. And um, and we can even explore how the how our present awareness subtly we can explore how it's not really divided into a subject and object, but in kind of more settled meditation, especially and hearing teachings about it again and again. But you're right to bring this up. I think the the uh, the first one is very obvious. The second one is kind of hard to see, and the third one you can't even really see at all it is the nature of seeing itself is that kind of getting it yeah yeah thanks for that's good clarification yes yeah that was good. some of what was coming up for me too was you know you have to use this language and um our existing way of talking about things and understanding things in order to get at something, begin to hint at and get at a different nature of reality. Yeah. And so in some ways, it's almost like 
the third way has to utilize the second yes, way yes. in order to even glimpse mm -hmm. totally. at mm -hmm. yeah the third the third type of self um, to kind of access or appreciate more and more of the third type of self, we need to use the kind of equipment equipment of the second type of self to do it, which is like language and our dualistic consciousness that can know ideas and our hearing and seeing and so on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We need so that's the Buddha was aware of that. It's like we this. First types of wisdom are actually using language and they're conceptual and they're limited in that way, but we almost need them. Um, it just it seems to be really helpful. The Buddha taught that these Zen ancestors who sometimes tend to more towards the like, it's outside all words and letters, but they're saying that and they're saying it a lot in many different ways. <laughs> they, they talk a lot. So, um, so even if they say, we don't really need that. Well, it looks like you're spending a lot of time saying we don't need it. So I think it is very helpful. Yeah, that's why there's all these teachings. And, and it's good to remember too, that they are, they're limited because they're, conceptually packaged but they're they're pointing they're pointing towards a non-conceptual reality yes Hi, this is my first time hearing about the three selves so i'm still trying to understand it is the first self kind of the possession the identification and then the second self more of those thoughts and awareness the common awareness and i would say kind of reverse the, the first one is more like the thought, the thoughts themselves arising and ceasing within awareness, thoughts, but also bodily experiences and feelings, and but arising and ceasing flux of stuff is the first type, the in, kind of interdependent condition experiences, fl flow of experience, and the second type was what did you say? Uh, ident the yeah, that's the second kind. Is the identification is a good word? Yeah, we we um, identify with the body and the thoughts and the feelings as our true self. I identify actually mean means I think like to become one with, become identical to. So like when when I'm identified with my with my feelings, bodies, and thoughts um, as my true self. You could say that's the illusory one. It's the, uh, just to have them happening is not such a problem, but to identify with them is another way that's, that you're nicely bring up here of saying the second kind, it's kind of problematic. And the third? The third, I guess we can only, we, will, we won't be able to encounter it. Maybe in Samadhi, maybe? Yeah, in a way, um, this is where language gets tricky. So in a way, even encounter it, it's not an experience. But yeah, in a way, samadhi, we can like, we can be it, like, fully. In a way, like, we are it already. It is our true nature. But in this GGU zamai, in this self-enjoyment samadhi, it's kind of like we're, we're, uh, we're being what we already are, or you could say some Dogen likes this word on um, verification. There's a kind of like um, 
a practice and verification of what we already are. I say we already are that. Let's practice and verify what we already are. Yeah. Yeah. You got it? Do you, kind of playing off both of that, do you have to, you have to have the two first selves to reach the third? Mm. Um, like, and does that constitute must having a, a human birth? Yeah, well? yeah. Yeah. So the question is, do you have to have the first two types of self in order to have the third? Do it. <laughs> To realize. To realize. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. And even, yeah, so some, some, we might wonder, could you have just the third without the first two? And um, so sometimes you hear teachings almost implied, like, well, there is that reality prior to, um, prior to sentient beings or something. But generally in Buddha Dharma, it's like, it's, oh, they always go together. So, um, like, there's no prior to. There's this always. There's the there's the true self, and it's always been um, manifesting. There's never there's never a, an unmanifest reality, okay. which is kind of nice teaching. It's mm -hmm. it's a really it's a teaching of non duality. That this non manifest um, source is beginninglessly, endlessly manifesting, and it's particularly maybe it didn't always manifest well it didn't always manifest humans for example because there haven't always been humans but maybe there was always some manifestation and for us humans you could say you know we we in order to realize to verify practice and verify realize the true self we it, for humans we do need like this human body and mind thing and, and the second type, you could say, couldn't we just skip that? But in fact, um, it seems that we're actually like born with that. Some would say, well, little babies, they just don't, they don't have that yet. Couldn't they just stay like that innocent? But I don't think so. <laughs> but even it's true that I mean, babies are wonderfully like free, but I think the teaching would be something like they have the, um, the uh, like, the uh the program is already is already installed and it just hasn't been okay you know the first i don't know how months months or years it hasn't been like opened yet but it will be and there's no way to not open it but it's installed from previous lives would be like the buddhist story so it's it's innate the the, the innate thing is the um is this capacity for this amazing illusion, this uh, reification of, and there's maybe evolutionary functions of it um, for thinking of one's flux of experience as a separate identity, but it also causes all these problems. Um, but yeah, we, if we have both the first two, that's the case. All sentient beings, you know, already have the first two and and then most of them just leave it at that <laughs> and, get, and get caught up, especially in the second one, and try to make the best of the first one and um, do okay and die and then do it again. <laughs> and then we have this possibility because we're hearing about this third one. Wow. We, um, we already have everything we need. That's one of the great things. It's not like we have to create the true self. It's already here. And it's just... It's just temporarily obscured and hidden by what? 
by the other two selves. It's, it's manifesting the other two selves. And I mean, the this, this second one being like the capacity to create the illusion. The illusion's not real, but the, but it, the function of creating the illusion is part of the second self. I mean, part of the first self, really. And um, so that, if you could say that's the amazing creativity of the true self that's doing that, but then that creativity is also masking itself, ironically. Um, so, but we have everything we need. We have, we have all three selves, <laughs> all of us have all three, everybody has all three. So that's pretty good. And then, and then, then we can, and then some of us now have these teachings and practices about these three that we can kind of now work with it. That's a rare thing. Hardly anybody has that. Thank you. <laughs> yes. It's actually uh, our point when you mentioned about the, the, the humans. I was struggling with that thought about you think that if without the second selves and the first, we wouldn't even be here? Would it, is it, are those cells that, that actually throughout evolution made us survive and Oh. Before there were 13, 14, you know, many different races of humans, you know, sapiens were the ones who actually now we are. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. thinking about at those times and <clears throat> wouldn't be this, this, this identifying yourself, but actually got us all the way here. And that's why we are, when we're born in our nature, where it's easier to be stuck. In those. Yeah. So the question is, um, yeah, is, is it these, these first two types of self that, got us here well in a way all three got us here right and um but you could say yeah without the um i mean the second the first type is just it is you, the fact that there's anything ever is the first type of self it's just the the relative world of experience that's we call it, we even the world is what we're calling experience so and sentient experience that um we were without that one there isn't anything actually and then and then i think you're particularly referring to the second type don't we need this illusory problematic thing to um to get to this point in evolution and i think so yeah i often think of how evolution is an interesting way i mean obviously we do have it i mean the teaching even in the buddhist time we all have this illusory problematic projection and that is the one that yeah, it got us. I mean, it is proof that it got us here because here we are. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So it looks like from a, from an evolutionary story, we could say that um, that's the that's the gene pool that survived is the one with this illusion, which kind of makes sense because it's like survival of the fittest, according to Darwin. And fit means it's the, also the one that's like me first, right? This illusory one, and that one kind of like um crushes the, the the more like no how about you first <laughs> so so yeah we like the, you could say we are the pinnacle of evolution these intelligent humans but you could say we're also the most deluded and i think it's true in a way right where we have the capacity for the most advanced types of delusion compared to other animals most intelligent Maybe it's why that we can create such an elaborate version of separate self, right? Like, like 
I think like dogs do have the sense of the separate self, but like they don't have to go to therapy and stuff. <laughs> it's, just, it's not as complicated. <laughs> it's a simple one. It's like, what do you mean? What do you mean I'm barking too loud? <laughs> and then they're, they're already over it. <laughs> like, like, you know, my mom told me like, 30 years ago that I barked too loud and I'm still not over it. <laughs> so, you laugh, but you laugh, but today I've been avoiding my dogs. How they think trying to get it in their head. So I think it's about time to stop. Maybe we should leave it there as we got through the title. <laughs> sort of an introduction to the title and we take it from there thank you so much you're welcome